With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast where we bring you the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. This week... Neymar isn't happy at PSG, Madrid are waiting to pounce, but will the Paris club's Quattari owners grow sick of the Brazilians' horseplay and sanction a move? Maurizio Pellegrino has been sacked by Southampton, but who will replace him? Not Marco Silva, according to Duncan Castles. We look at the runners and riders. David De Gea is chomping at the bit for a new contract, but still hasn't had an offer from Manchester United. We look at why and how the summer may be a busy one for the world's top goalkeepers. And Pep Guardiola may have raced ahead of the pack in the Premier League, but he's still looking for upgrades to his talented stable. We bring news of a player that's on his shopping list. Okay, guys, we go in straight away with the big news coming out of Camp Neymar. Ian, what's happening? Well... What's clearly developing, Johnny, is is something which has been you know rippling um, the surface of the water this season, which is Neymar's um, let's just say disgruntlement at his current situation at Paris Saint Germain. Um, it's clearly been something which uh, he has um, gained less enjoyment, less um, fulfilment from than he had imagined. Um, I think we spoke at the beginning. Um, of the current season, uh, that we were sceptical that Neymar would find the kind of sporting challenge that he uh, yearned for in Paris, and that in- indeed it was very much about the the money and the, and the the wages it was being paid. What's evident uh, now is that uh, he has been given the perfect uh, little mini break, uh, albeit obviously by. Um, uh, incident and situation rather than by design uh, in the, he has had surgery in Brazil um, on his ankle and metatarsal and he's now effectively recuperating for the next five or six weeks um, and I th- believe and I've heard from two members in his camp mulling over his future um, the Champions League has been a failure uh, for both Paris Saint-Germain the club and for Neymar um, winning Liga Anne was never why he went there. It was always about the greater glory of the Cup of the Big Years. And um, in that sense, uh, Paris Saint-Germain have made no progress, having lost to Real Madrid over both legs um, in, in the competition. So, Neymar sitting in Brazil, he fits in a, some kind of protective cast, and he's thinking, what do I do next season? We know, we've spoken about it, that Real Madrid are very, very keen to take him there. We've heard that Barcelona would also be keen to have him back. And indeed, it may just be the case that Neymar would prefer to return to camp now than to go to the Santiago Bernabeu. But my question would be, when a player like Neymar comes on the market, should he come on the market? 
why would there be no interest from England? Manchester City, given Neymar's age, given his ability, given his effectiveness um, on, and his effect on football matches, why, if you're building the best team in the world at Manchester City, would Neymar not be a fit? And indeed, given Chelsea's expectancy that they may lose one or two of their best players this summer, and Roman Abramovich's ongoing desire to break transfer records and to sign the best players, a massive statement would be an interest in Neymar. I'm not saying they'll sign him, but the interest would be there. We know that Manchester United um, two years ago had a big interest in him. I don't think and don't believe that their budget nor Jose Mourinho's strategy now sees Neymar as a, as a part of their future. However, um, I don't see it being a sort of one-horse race with Real Madrid. Um, and I'm not saying that Neymar will leave this summer. I think a lot depends on the coach who PSG recruit to replace Unai Emery. Um, well, I don't know your thoughts, Duncan, but I suspect that he may be appeased if he gets the right guy uh, in, which will suit him to stay there for another year. I think um, it's clear that Neymar, and, and more importantly, his father, who's been the agitator behind all of these moves and has always been um, more important in what's happening than Neymar himself. Um, wants to, they want to leave the club and they are looking to see if it's possible to get a way out. Um, Madrid are, the Madrid president Florentino Perez is actively encouraging that. I think there's, there's probably an element of him seeing that as a two-way win in that um, he thinks he'll get the player at some point down the line. He thinks that that is the major attraction for Neymar to go back to Spanish football, to be the kingpin in a club like Real Madrid that will pay him the wages and give him the environment he wants to work in. But if he can't get him this summer, then it does Real Madrid no harm to have this soap opera of Neymar's discontent um, at Paris Saint-Germain continue because um, Paris Saint-Germain, who are now a direct rival to Madrid for the, the European title by dint of their, their, their spending prowess um, and, the, and the personnel that they've managed to assemble in the field, um, if you can weaken them internally by having their star player um, murmuring and picking fights with other top players within the club, which is what he's been doing, then all the best for, for Real Madrid. I don't think a change of coach will make any significant difference to um, Neymar's thinking in that respect. Um, might help circumstances in the sense that you might be a bit more content. Um, you know, we've we've talked on here through the season about his discontent and unhappiness with Emery, and one of you know one of those complaints was that he wasn't allowed to pick and choose when he could have games off. Um, obviously, if PSG decide they want are prepared to put a coach in who's going to let Neymar have that kind of unprecedented freedom, then Neymar will be happier with that. But I don't think the the you know the the basis of this is about getting holidays off. It's it's he wants to be back in Spain and back at a top club. In terms of England, um, you're right, Manchester United. Um, through Jose Mourinho, tried very hard to get Neymar when they were looking for um, top-level forward to come in post-Ibrahimovic. Um, Mourinho talked to Neymar on a frequent basis to to see whether he'd be prepared to, to make that jump. 
if uh, Manchester United would spend the money on it. Um, Neymar encouraged them, um, and there was a point at which Mourinho <coughs> thought uh, it could be possible to do that. But ultimately, um, United were not prepared to go to the financial lengths um, required to get him, and certainly nowhere near the lengths um, Qatar did to sign him. So I think you're right, that one is off the table. Um, Manchester City is interesting. Um, in some ways, you could see the fit um, to, to their project, and obviously they have the financial resources to do that. If, if they if they decided to, um, I don't know if he's quite attractive enough to Guardiola. I think one of the elements of, of Guardiola's coaching is he prefers players who do what they're told. Um, Conform. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the, his tactical planning it, the, is, is very complex in terms of where people have to be on the field, um, when balls are to be passed, uh, Tackling opponents, you know, in Neymar's Neymar's role, you can see the way Raheem Sterling and Leroy Zani and David Silva played this season. Kevin De Bruyne as well. All of them expected to go in and press opponents and and foul opponents if necessary as soon as the opposition recover the ball. That's kind of a fundamental aspect of City's defending, and Neymar would be expected to do that. Is he the right player to, to follow those guidelines? Is he the right player to fit into a team system as opposed to want to be the guy who leads the team system? So I'd be slightly sceptical of, of that, of them being prepared to, to put the money down. The final thing, and, and this is what I keep hearing back, you know, I've been asking about what's going on with Neymar. Is he serious about pushing the move? Um, keep getting the yes answer back. But from people I know at PSG, the other answer is the Qataris will not let him go. They won't let him go. It's too embarrassing for them to to put the money down on the table, um, to, to make him the cornerstone of their project, and then to let him leave uh, one summer later or even two summers later. So unless that changes, unless Neymar and his father can can manipulate the Qataris to a point where they're prepared to, to um, accept the move away, it seems... And, you know, we've, we've talked about Cristiano Ronaldo coming in the other direction as being a possibility in that line. But the feedback I'm still getting is the Qataris will not let him go in the summer. OK, gents, moving on from one former Barcelona player to another, Maurizio Pellegrino at Southampton has been given the order of the boot. Duncan, any idea who's going to be replacing him? Well, I think Luke Southampton have waited a long time uh, to try and avoid this sacking. It's something... They didn't want to do it and they hoped that the form in the Premier League could turn around. Obviously, they're still in the FA Cup and have a good chance of reaching the semi-final. But um, the kind of dissent within the dressing room and particularly of the supporters has, has forced their hand. It's, it's very late in the season to do this. They, they need, you know, they, they, they're, they're saying that they want an impact manager. They're saying they're going to change their standard policy or they're thinking of changing their standard policy and recruiting and recruiting managers um, to to solve an immediate problem, um, but it's a, it's a risky strategy. Generally, clubs get get impact when they change coaches, but it's not guaranteed, and he, and the new man won't have much time to to play with. One of the guys who's been um, proposed as 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 a favourite for the job um, is Marco Silva. Um, you can see the reasoning there because of what he did at Hull City. 
uh, last year, almost saving them from relegation um, with more time to work with, but when people thought they were absolutely gone and had no chance. Um, I've checked uh, with people close to Marco Silva this morning and they tell, told me to forget about that. Um, they're saying there's no chance he goes to Southampton, um, which would suggest to me that um, he has uh, more interesting offers uh, on the table uh, for the summer, which, again, not entirely surprising. Um, the other guy who's, who's being mentioned um, which who does tick those the boxes in terms of Premier League experience, likely to have you'd expect to have a, 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 an immediate impact because he's a good organised coach and could sustain it into another season and sort of fits the Southampton model is Mark Hughes. Um, so that would be the one to pay attention to at the moment, uh, in that he he seems to have the qualities. Um, Enough of the qualities required uh, to be an appointment that Southampton could take the risk with to, to try and keep them in the Premier League. I'd say this um, uh, to, to Johnny and Duncan. Um, in, in living memory, this has been the uh, biggest game of managerial roulette that I can remember in terms of relegation threatened clubs. Um, I suspect that um, right in thinking that every club in the bottom 10 except Newcastle, Brighton and Huddersfield, who were the promoted clubs, have now changed coach uh, <coughs> this season. Um, Eddie Howe at Bournemouth has uh, been floating in out of the top 10, but and some have changed twice. So you can see the impact that the new television deal has had on this, the impact of the financial um, uh, sort of penalisation that will happen should you go down this season. Because to sack a manager with eight games left in a season, um, I'm not saying it's a massive gamble because clearly Southampton are hovering above the relegations of one point off in 17th. So it's not a massive gamble, except to say that would a new guy coming in now make the difference which is substantial enough to, to get the points to keep them up? Uh, I mean, they're at least 10 points away from that right now. But clearly they think that it's a gamble worth taking. Um, it's very interesting what Duncan has said regarding Marco Silva because he is by far and away the bookies' favourite. Uh, and as Cheltenham begins this week, I think you know we all have to hope to beat the bookies. Um, and that uh, anyone who's put their money in Marco Silva, given what Duncan said, is about to lose that. Um, Mark Hughes would be, I think, the fairly obvious choice. Um, he has that combination of both experience and sort of sergeant major type um, discipline, which that Southampton team look to me, uh, appear to me to need right now to get them to start performing. Because uh, if you look at their squad, both at the start of the season and, and throughout the season, you have said that they were one of those clubs in the you know old cliche, too good to go down. So uh, I think the Southampton um, owners, of course, who have changed as well uh, in the course of the last 12 months, are now thinking, well, we made a mistake in, in, the, in the way we appointed one win in 17 Premier League games is clearly relegation form. Um, and maybe just looking a little bit wistfully at Claude Puel at Leicester, who they sacked, um, who has rejuvenated Leicester's season and made them safe. 
Um, so again, it's a case of the, the you know the, the owners looking at the finances and next season and the projected rewards of the next television deal and everything else, and thinking we just cannot allow this to sustain or go on. We have to we have to switch now. Um, I hope for their sake they do have someone lined up because you know my bugbear, as I've said many times, is that when you sack a manager, um, you have to have the guy ready to come in right away. Uh, we've got a um, international break coming up uh, in the next two weeks, which will allow a new manager to come in and, and spend some time with the players and obviously uh, coach them in the way that he wants them to play. So it's it's a good time if you like if you're going to make a decision this late, eight games to go. This is probably the best time to do it. Uh, it's an interesting point, you know, just looking at the table there in 10th, 9th and 8th have also all sacked their manager this season yeah. as well. You've got Watford, Everton, Leicester. Everton, yep, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it's it, been, I think it's been the, the worst round of sackings, Duncan, in the Premier League era and because we've had some clubs have changed manager twice and a couple have changed manager three times since the beginning of the season. And so, um, you know, it's it's been a real... You know, uh, I don't know. I'm a manager. Get me out of here, type season. Yeah, and it's so it's so tight down the bottom. I think Pellegrino's been a little bit unfortunate, and he's got he's got a huge number of draws in that. Okay, he hasn't won in that one. Yeah, the one in seventeen. Yeah, thirteen draws this season is, um, and a number of those have been close run things. Um, and it wouldn't, you know, it only takes a couple of those, and, and suddenly you're in the top. You're almost in the top ten of the. But again, Duncan, we um, <clears throat> new owners um, who who stood firm and didn't sell Van Dyke in the summer window, but then decided to take the seventy-five million cash from Liverpool in the January one, but didn't invest to replace him. Uh, yep. A little bit naive, maybe badly advised. Um, we can't be sure about that. But now decided that it's their turn to take action, and you know replace. Uh, Pellegrino with someone else who, as I said, I sincerely hope they already have that person in mind and that they've agreed to deal with them because the uncertainty will be much worse for Southampton than it would be positive. Um, interesting, in the same sort of uh, mainstream type uh, conversation that West Brom's owners are saying, we'll stick with Pardew now till you know eight games out. I think they're gone anyway. I think the, the owners have resigned themselves. They sat to chief executive and chairman uh, three weeks ago. I think the idea that they'll keep Padre to the end of the season is simply, well, it's just housekeeping now. And they've already decided that they're preparing for a promotion season from the championship next year. So uh, maybe, maybe Southampton's appointment will be with that in mind as well. Okay, moving from the relegation dogfight at the bottom of the league up to the battle for second, third and fourth. We had a fascinating encounter at Old Trafford on Saturday and there's so many topics to discuss, but we'll start off with um, the criticism of Jose Mourinho. Uh, a lot of people branding him a long ball merchant. We had uh, Frank De Boer memorably coming out and on BT Sport and saying that uh, Marcus Rashford probably wasn't under the tutelage of the best manager. Duncan, what's your take on all this criticism that's been floating about about Jose? Well, I, I think um, I think Mourinho's response to De Boer was um, was classic, Jose Mourinho. Um, and the criticism was was not very well grounded, was it? Uh, Marcus Rashford actually 
played more games than any Manchester United player up till January. He was uh, he's been left out of the team um, in the last couple of months. So left out of the starting lineup in the last couple of months because his form had tailed off um, over the two seasons. I think Duncan two thousand one hundred nineteen minutes this season, which is the only players who played most um, from uh, the information I gleaned from that were De Gea, uh, uh, Matic, Mata, uh, Lukaku, and there was one other player. So I think that was a very, very naive and un- you know, factually incorrect criticism with regards to Rashford. Exactly. And over the two, I was looking at Premier League minutes for Rashford over the two seasons, Mourinho has been there and he's eighth um, of all the players at Manchester United during that time. And in terms of total appearances, he's, he's much higher up the rankings because, you know, as we know, he essentially plays <coughs> half a game or, or part of the game with Martial. So they switch the two of them um, for that left wing position for most of the season. And it's... You know, I, I don't think this bit was, was shown so much or was seen so much of De Boer's criticism, but he was talking about how if he was his manager, he would give him 30 to 40 games a season guaranteed. Rashford's actually played more than 40 games in both seasons under Mourinho. And De Boer was also talking about Ajax, we do it this way. Um, well, Ajax are a club whose um, average age of player is in their low 20s and they, they essentially put players like Rashford in the shop window with the intention of selling them as quickly as possible, which isn't necessarily the best thing for their development. Um, and if you are a Marcus Rashford at a club like Manchester United, the development issue becomes very different from the one at Ajax Amsterdam because the expectations on you as a player are far greater. Had And this, this was Mourinho's... Um, problem with Rashford, if you like, when he came to the club. Do I make this guy the starting centre forward? I see the talent, I see the attitude he has, I love him as a player. But if I make him the centre forward with all the obligations of being the centre forward at, at, at Manchester United, and I know this is a player who, who performs best against teams who come at us with a high line like Liverpool did at the weekend and get and is able to run in behind as opposed to um, teams who sit deep and ask him to to play with his back to goal. What do I do for his development? Is, do, I, do I potentially set him backwards because he has spells where he fails to perform and he gets too too much criticism? Or do I use him as I've been using, which is give him lots of playing time, use him at the moments which, which when are most appropriate for Manchester United and when he can best succeed, and allow his development. And he's only just turned twenty. Um, to to go on from there. Um, the, the, the criticism basically is bizarre, given what Rashford has achieved over these two years and how effective he's been for United. It's, it, there really isn't very much logical basis to what De Boer said. And you wonder whether De Boer was saying something because he wanted to be in the headlines because he's out of a job and it's that time of year when managerial jobs um, are being considered for next season, both in England and on a, on a, on a wider platform. And the criticism um, generally, Johnny, of the tactics, I find absolutely ludicrous. Um, if anyone's read The Art of War, um, which you know the classic text for how you set up, design... Um, execute a battle plan then the key element to that is that you look at your opponent's weakness 
And when you find your opponent's weakness, that's the first thing that you go for. You set out to exploit that weakness. What's Liverpool's weakness? Well, in this case, Dejan Lovren is Liverpool's weakness. And what Mourinho obviously had um, either decided tactically or had been scouted through their video analysis, etc., was that Lovren would be the more <clears throat> forward of the two centre-backs. That Van Dijk's mobility, agility and strength would have been utilised as a spare man. So what does he do? He, he takes his goalkeeper, who is a phenomenally accurate kicker, and says to Romelu Lukaku, you can take first phase of play <clears throat> against Lovren, and then we take that chance, because there's always the element if you risk the ball, risk possession, in the second phase, um, <clears throat> and that Rashford can get in behind. He said himself, Jose, after the game, I felt Arnold, Alexander-Arnold was a, possibly a weak link, <clears throat> and therefore, if I tell Rashford to go inside him, which he did for the first goal, then, no matter Van Dyke's mobility or pace, he's not going to be able to affect a tackle or influence that part of the game quickly enough in order to prevent chance creation, and in this case, an actual goal. Now, again, we come up against this argument, don't we? And we've talked about it in terms of punditry and everything else in the last two or three weeks, and enemies of football, and what do you do? Jose Mourinho's job is to win football matches for Manchester United. He has correctly identified a weakness in his opponent. He has then instructed his players to exploit that weakness in order that they may well score a goal which gives them an advantage. What's wrong with that? I don't get it. I mean, tactically, I love watching stuff like that. Absolutely love it. I don't care who wins between Manchester and Liverpool. I have no <clears throat> interest in either club in terms of <clears throat> which one should win that game. But what I do like <clears throat> excuse me, is to see a manager implement both his tactical nose and um, get his players to execute that game plan in order to gain an advantage. And he did it twice. And there were two goals up. And yes, Liverpool came back. And Liverpool are a wonderful team to watch. And they may or may not have been a little bit unlucky with regards to penalty claims late in the game. But the bottom line is, it was too late. Man United were already 2-0 up. So, and I think also, just as a buy by the by, I thought Bailly was fantastic up until the point he scored you know, an unfortunate one goal. I thought his movement, his um, anticipation and his reading of the game were brilliant inside the box. So, yeah, that was a bit of an abhorrent you know, second for him, but it was certainly not worthy you know, of what his performance had been to that point. So, uh, I'm sorry, but again, it's not Jose Mourinho's um, responsibility to provide entertainment for the general public in terms of football matches. Manchester United fans, would you have said to them, to a, a man, woman and child leaving Old Trafford last Saturday afternoon, would you rather have beaten Liverpool the way we beat them or would you rather have got a different result and had a game where you thought it was more open and entertaining? They would say the former. The win is the most important thing. So, um, you know, it, I rest my case there. I just do not see it. And when Mourinho said after the game, I don't care what people say, he's absolutely right. He shouldn't care. Yeah, there, look, there were there were two elements to the tactics that that Mourinho implemented very effectively, and they, and they looked straightforward afterwards. But they're done and they worked. One was Liverpool depend on their high press; they like to take the ball off the opposition in their own half and and attack the goal quickly. He denied them that by his defensive setup and by 
bypassing the high press with the hair or defenders long balls to Lukaku. And then secondly, as you identified, he he played on day and Lovren marking um, the best header of the ball on the field to create chances in behind Alexander-Arnold, who we all know, know is defensively weak. So he did two simple tactical things. Let's turn it to the other side. You've got Jurgen Klopp standing on the touchline during the first half while this is happening. Well, you know, most people, the, the tactics aren't particularly complicated. And most people could understand and see what's happening. No change, no response. He, he second half, he piles more players into the centre of the park, actually making it easier for Manchester United to defend. And Mourinho made a very salient point after the game, which was, where was De Gea's saves? De Gea's made many important saves for us this season. He didn't make any saves for us today because we controlled that game without the ball. And that's what they did. So Klopp fails to respond in the second half with a, with a plan when he's had time to think about it to turn the game around. Also, he signed a £75 million centre-back and he leaves that centre-back to cover space. Um, presumably, it's his instruction that Lovren should mark Lukaku rather than Van Dijk. Um, he then, and, and remember, Lovren is a guy who Klopp publicly criticised earlier this season for um, failing to defend straightforward long balls down the pitch. In fact, said that he could have done a better job in his training. He did say that, yeah, he did. He, he goes into that game with expectations so high in Liverpool and he has love for marking Lukaku. His, his post-match complaint is about the, the, the failure to defend the second balls. Again, where is Virgil van Dijk? If Virgil van Dijk is not taking the ball on with the head against Lukaku, he surely should be covering the second balls. He's not there in that instance to cover the second balls. So, that, so there's, there's gross failures on the part of Liverpool in this game. And then to make the complaint, as many have, that the football by Manchester United wasn't pretty enough is just insane. We, we seem to be in this world where there's, there, there, a good chunk of the punditry and a, and a good chunk of the noise around football is not only do you have to win games, you have to win them in the one way we've declared to be appropriate to play football, which is the, the Pep Guardiola um, tight passing, lots of possession, um, play the game in the opposition half. When did that become the, the determining factor in, in, in what was good football? I always thought what good football was was beating your opponents and winning titles in the way you have to do. And if I'm employing a manager and I've got limited resources, I'd rather have a manager who can play in multiple ways than puts all his eggs in the, in the basket of playing the most complicated, difficult, beautiful when it works out, wonderfully impressive football, which is the Guardiola method. And Guardiola has got it working at Manchester City. He's won, he's won the, the, the title by a country mile. All praise for that. But let's see if he can win the Champions League doing it. And let's see how many other teams can, can emulate that methodology and be successful with, with less, less resources and possibly lesser managers. Managers are not good at, at teaching that method, which is you know one that Guardiola has frankly been obsessed about and obsessed about implementing in the best way possible through his entire career. So you'd suspect he's better at it than anyone else anyway. Duncan, do you believe that some clubs have a culture? Because there'd be a lot of people saying that 
Manchester United have developed an attacking football culture through Busby, through Ferguson, and that Mourinho, with his style, isn't really in tune with that club culture. Do you believe that? What's the culture? I mean, it's a... Yes, it's true that Manchester United pride themselves on playing attacking football, and it's something that the, the, the fans will talk about. But if you go back and examine the Ferguson era, he didn't he didn't win the European Cup by playing all out attack. <laughs> the, the reason they got their second European Cup was he changed his management style. He brought in Carlos Queiroz to to essentially do what Mourinho was doing at Chelsea, which is the sort of very detailed analysis of opponents before the game and preparing particular defensive strategies against them. And if you talk to guys like Patrice Evra, who were central to that that strongest um, team of the latter Manchester United era, they will talk about how important Carlos Kerish's work was in winning them that second European Cup. So, okay, you can say there's a culture there at Manchester United, but they didn't play that way in every game. And they certainly didn't didn't go into every European Cup tie saying, right, we're just going to play the opponents off the field and we're going to attack them into oblivion. And they certainly didn't take on Arsenal when Arsenal were um, just coming off the back of their invincible season that way. I mean, covered so many games at, at Emirates where Manchester United came, uh, played, for example, Park, Park Ji-sung in midfield to, to strengthen up their midfield, one striker, let Arsenal come to them and pick them off on the break. Um, not too dissimilar from to to what um, Mourinho's Manchester United did to Liverpool at the weekend. You touched on David De Gea there. Um, no contract offer has yet been made, but he's been such a vital part to Manchester United this season. You touched on it with regards to what Mourinho was saying about the lack of saves that he made and the saves that he's made throughout the season. Why do you think that is, and do you think it's difficult for a top keeper to get a move to uh, between the big clubs in European football? Well, look, De Gea, De Gea's interpretation of it is that this is what Manchester United always do. Um, they're very, very slow on contract renewals, um, and you, you can see that through the, the squad at the moment. We've discussed it on the podcast couple of times how they tend to first of all they give players contracts um the standard length is a four year with a one year option in the club's favor they tend to let the the contracts run into that final year then implement the option and then try and renegotiate the deal um, we discussed before that they've rarely been under pressure with players because usually the players don't want to leave and they don't have suitors at other clubs who can afford to take them anyway. So they kind of take this kind of relaxed approach to renewals. De Gea is a different, um, it's a different problem altogether for them because he does have a very prominent and affluent suitor that he would like to move to. He's made no secret of the fact that he sees his career, the next stage of his career being at Real Madrid. Um, he wants to go back to his hometown He's not in a rush to do it. He's never, he's never got himself in a situation where he has gone the whole, you know, Philippe Coutinho, if you like, in in stopping training and putting the transfer request in and doing everything possible to chase the move. Partly because the people around him have advised him not to go that way. Partly because the people around him have said, "You're a goalkeeper. You're young. You've got at least ten years left in your career." Um, the better thing for you to do is to stay at Manchester United. You're the best player there. You're the player of the year. 
win the title, maybe win the Champions League there, and Real Madrid will always still be there. Man United are taking a risk by continuing this strategy because we're now two or three years down the line of it. And um, if they don't satisfy De Gea, and De Gea has a very, very good case to say, you've brought in Paul Pogba, you've brought in Alexis Sanchez, and you've put their wages significantly above mine. I've been player of the year at this club for four of the last five years. I've been in the Premier League team of the year as best goalkeeper in England for four of the last five years. I deserve to be on a par with those players. Um, they are they have surprised that, that the contract offer has not been made yet. Um, United had the possibility, the option to get this done earlier in the season when Madrid were focused on signing Kepa from Athletic Bilbao. Um, Kepa refused to go and suddenly De Gea um, and another Premier League goalkeeper in Thibaut Courtois have, have come back on Madrid's agenda and um, instead of United essentially having a free run at renewing the contract of a player who was happy at the club, they've now got competition and um, a degree of disgruntlement from a player who is very, very important to them. I think um, it's interesting as well that uh, Courtois uh, and his agent have made sort of open, um, uh, let's just say they've uh, sort of come come to bed eyes uh, to Madrid. Um, what I've heard from within Chelsea is that Courtois is someone who is um, a, a personality who is uh, very grounded someone who is realistic, someone who looks upon his career very seriously, uh, who wants to progress his career, etc., etc. It's not about money always for him. Um, and he's getting a little bit, a little bit uh, frustrated by the soap opera um, that is Chelsea's um, managerial politics. Um, he's seen the highs and lows of... Uh, Mourinho winning a title, then getting sacked, and now it's obviously Antonio Conte's um, turn to win a title and then be sacked or leave the club in the summer, and that uh, he thinks to himself, well, I've kind of had enough of this. I'm not really keen to go on um, changing coach every one or two years, or and uh, I would prefer, even if it is the, you know, what we know, the snake pit of Real Madrid. Uh, uh, the chance to play there, he spent obviously three very successful years at Atletico. Um, knows the city well, loves the city, still retains a home there. Um, and I think that if De Gea is not Real Madrid's number one target um, for the summer, or indeed a shared number one target, then Courtois um, is certainly making himself available to Madrid in a way which um, would make it difficult for Chelsea to keep him because he has two years left in his contract. Um, his wages aren't particularly high right now. Um, a bid um, of around 50, 60 million would be enough, I think, to secure Courtois out of Chelsea, um, who are already looking at replacements for him because they realise or they sense his um, disgruntlement with the current situation. So uh, I think we've got a very interesting few weeks and months ahead with regards to goalkeepers at the top four clubs in the Premier League and Real Madrid who are clearly looking to um, upgrade their goalkeeper um, having failed to do so last season. 
Yeah, look, Courtois, Courtois has a very good offer on the table from Chelsea, um, £200,000 a week. Um, Madrid have for a long time uh, talked to him and made clear their interest. What Courtois is trying to find out is how serious that interest is. And I think that, that that's a big reason why he gave... I think one of those statements was actually in a UEFA press conference before a Champions it League. It was, that's right, Duncan, yeah. So you can't you can't be more explicit than sitting down in front of an open press conference being asked about you as a footballer and saying, Well, I'd be interested in going to that club yeah. they want to take me. That's that's pretty much as blatant as it gets in, in it's, football. It's certainly the point where the press officer starts to choke on his humbug, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, and and that's you know from talking to people close to Thibaut that that is very much his thinking is find out whether Madrid are prepared to do it this time because I have to make a decision on on uh, whether I take this new contract um, at Chelsea and and the points you've identified Ian which is where can he go with Chelsea um, having to deal with a change of manager so often um, looking at a squad that has been declining in quality, um, looking at opposition within the division who are improving in quality, um, wondering what he can win there are all are all part of his, his thinking. So I, I think and, and we shouldn't Duncan dismiss the fact that we know because we are close to let's just say the people close to the players, that people like <clears throat> Kevin De Bruyne in Manchester City talk to Thibaut Courtois and talk about how wonderful the atmosphere is in the Manchester City dressing room and how positive and you know the attitude is is very progressive there um under a manager who they know is safe and secure etc etc um and that that stuff gets back and you know it's not just Courtois we know it's Hazard as well at Chelsea um and you've also got Michi Batshuayi who scored seven and nine games for Dortmund and I think is desperate not to return to Chelsea so you've got that little pocket of Belgian players um, all heading to the World Cup in Russia this summer, all chatting to each other about the pros and cons of the clubs they're currently at and, the, and, the, and of course, the pros and cons of the clubs that they are currently signed to and what should they do next. So it, it will be intriguing um, you know, what, what transpires over the next weeks and months. Well, we've touched on Liverpool, Manchester United and Chelsea, but fear not, Man City fans, we have some news for you guys too. Ian, there's a player that might be interesting, Pep Guardiola. Who is he? Yes, uh, Johnny. <clears throat> Not surprising um, when you think about it, but Emery Chan, who is out of contract at Liverpool this summer, who has kept his options very much open. His agent uh, only last week declared that there'd be no further talks with anyone, um, including Liverpool, until the end of the season. And, of course, Emery Chan will also expect to be going to the World Cup finals in Russia, which complicates things further. But um, we know that Manchester City <clears throat> will look to improve their squad uh, uh, when they win the Premier League title, which they're obviously uh, on the procession um, path to do. Uh, they've already won the League Cup. They're still in the Champions League. And um, Fernandinho will be offered a new contract or indeed, I think, may be very close to signing one. Yaya Turi will be out of contract and will leave. But they are looking at their options regarding the midfield pivot, the, the, the double pivot in, in the two, in the four two three one, Chan is, I wouldn't say, is necessarily number one choice um, in this situation, but he's one that 
that uh, Guardiola respects. I think he has some concerns over um, Ilke Gundahan's uh, fitness and form, even though he's come back from his injury very well. Um, and that Chan, quite frankly, as a you know international central defensive midfielder who is on a freedom of contract, is very, very attractive proposal to any club, especially a club in the um, the elite level. And I think that, uh, well, I don't think I know that's the case, that um, Manchester City have lodged an interest with Chan's representatives so that they are kept abreast of negotiations and offers of contracts to the player who will leave on a free from Liverpool. I don't believe he will stay at Liverpool. And um, with regards to how he fits into that team, well, I think it's fairly obvious. You know, As I said, uh, Fernandinho and um, Yaya Toure are the wrong side of 30. Chan is someone who I... I think Guardiola believes can be further developed as a player. Um, I think he has some fairly obvious limitations to the way that he currently plays, but that he's young enough to be able to be coached and to cut out mistakes or things in his game that you know would not suit Manchester City at this moment in time. So, uh, interesting one. I don't think um, Liverpool fans would be very pleased about the idea of Chan leaving on a freedom of contract to join another Premier League club, especially a rival as big as Manchester City. However, that is a real possibility. Yeah, look, I think Manchester City will sign Fred in the summer as one of the, the players to come in um, and play that role. Uh, Fernandinho will get a new contract. But you can see the attraction in China, why they're looking at that possibility, because you've got, again, you know, Fred can play as cover for David Silva um, and Chan would be in the same category in that he, you, he doesn't have to play as a six, he could also play as an eight. Um, and to get a backup player with um, a bigger physique than most of his midfielders um, at no transfer cost, obviously um, high wages, might be an attraction um, to City in, in terms of rounding out a squad which Probably the, weak, the, the biggest weakness Guardiola has at the moment is he doesn't have enough players that he trusts to play, um, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, a very complicated system. And that's, that's kind of why results have tailed off to a certain extent in the second half of the season. Because he's, if you look at the players he's used, it's, it's a very limited palette. Um, he, he tries to get his best players on the pitch for almost every game. And he makes them run um, more than just about any Premier League manager. So there are a lot of miles in them. And really, the recruitment in, in the next window will be about expanding the options of players he trusts to bring in um, for not just for big games, but for the games through the season um, to allow them uh, to retain a dominance in the Premier League and, and not be so tired when it comes to the 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 really important part of the Champions League season, which is what we're what we're at now, and which is something that has been a problem for Guardiola's teams, um, particularly at Bayern Munich, um, for several years, and, and one he is aware of and, and knows he needs to solve if he's going to win the Champions League with Manchester City. I think that's a key <clears throat> point you've made there, Duncan, that um, we know that City will win the Premier League this, this, this season. Um, and therefore it will be assumed that they will defend the Premier League next season. But what's the assumption is not that they won the Champions League in this particular uh, competition that they remain in uh, and are in the quarterfinals. Um, however, 
it will be very much onus on Guardiola to win the Champions League and retain the Premier League title next season, for which he needs to prepare properly. He needs to fill out that squad with players he can trust to play and change and rotate from Premier League to Champions League or Cup and everything else. And Chan, as a free agent, is a very attractive proposition in that sense because whatever he is in terms of his, his let's just say his shortcomings, he is reliable and dependent and, and does have top-level experience. Therefore, as a free agent with the wages, you know, around 200, 250 a week, probably less even, then <clears throat> that would be a shrewd investment for Manchester City because they could augment what is a very strong squad already with a very good young player who would be, uh, you know, not a, a depreciating asset as well. Football, football's played across the season um, and most of the prizes are handed out at the end of the season. Guardiola's been very good at winning titles rapidly. Um, doing it at Bayern, not such a big deal because, of, because he had such an advantage over the opposition. Doing it in the Premier League, a very big deal. But there's a tendency in football to rush to judgment and say on the basis of not even three quarters of a season, half a season or a quarter of a season that this, this management style or this football team is the best we've seen and look how great they're going to be. If you make those judgments before a whole season's out, you, you, you put yourself at risk. And it, it's kind of the other side of the, the coin that we were talking about with Mourinho's tactics against, uh, against Liverpool and the adaptability. If you only play one way, and Guardiola essentially only plays one way, it's always dependent on a lot of effort and a lot of passing control, then you put bigger physical demands on your players. And those physical demands, if you don't have enough players you trust, add up through the season. Guys get injured. Um, if you play a lot on the ball, you get more injuries, because, especially in England, because you're on the ball more and you're more likely to get kicked. And that makes it harder to win. At, at the, the ultimate trophy, the Champions League, at the end of the season. If you're adaptable and you can win games with, with, um, with less running and with different strategies in different situations and with different players, then you retain energy levels and have more chance, potentially, of winning the top titles at the end of the season. So whatever, whenever something's really good, and clearly what Guardiola is doing at Manchester City is really good, there's always a counterbalance and that's what the other managers and that's what the other, other competitors look to exploit. So this week is the week of Cheltenham, guys. Now, I'm not a big horse racing fan, so I have no idea what that means, really. But um, what we're going to look at in this quickfire round, it's the sort of Cheltenham theme. We're going to look at who is the, the best players in the Premier League, who's in the running for Player of the Year. And which of these players are a good on-the-nose bet and which ones are the each-way bets for this top prize in English football? So we're going to start with you, Duncan, and David Silva. Um, David Silva, yeah, it would, would be an each-way bet. In some ways, you'd, you'd like to see him get a Player of the Year prize because for the quality that he's brought to English football um, down the years. Um, but... There's obviously a stronger candidate than him in the Manchester City team this season, so I wouldn't put the money on him to, to be made Player of the Year. Ian, Harry Kane. Um, <clears throat> given that uh, he's English, an England national, he's become something of an icon um, uh, for the England national team going into 
uh, a World Cup campaign in Russia. I would say that there will be a lot of punters out there, Johnny, who will take Kane on the nose. But for me, he would be each way. David De Gea. I think it's uh, it's very difficult to see a goalkeeper getting the award, especially when he plays for, for Manchester United, one of the top teams, and in a season where Manchester United aren't going to win the title. Um, you, you, If you're betting on who would be Premier League goalkeeper of the year, he should get it again, but um, probably not even an each-way bet in De Gea's case, unfortunately. Sergio Aguero. I, I think we've hit on the nose, right on the nose here, Johnny. Um, this is a guy who's performed um, consistently, repeatedly over the years for Manchester City, uh, won titles already with them, um, has this season exceeded the um, to become record goal scorer at the club, um, is well-liked by fans, by the media, by his fellow players as being someone who's very fair. And I think you've got to take into account that um, in terms of the PFA award, Players have already voted on this. They vote by the end of February. And I think Aguero is a very, very strong candidate. So I would say if um, if I'm putting my Cheltenham budget on a player to win the PFA award, then it will be Sergio Aguero. Oh, that's big money there, Ian, your, own, your entire Cheltenham budget. <laughs> well, we're, we're only Tuesday, Duncan, so let's not go too far. <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne. That, for me, there's only one player of the year this season. It would have to be Kevin De Bruyne. He's the outstanding player in the outstanding team. Um, whenever he is out of that team, you you notice the difference in Manchester City. Um, so on the nose, um, doesn't matter where the odds are, That's that he should be the one winning it. Mo Salah. It's a good shout. Obviously, top goal scorer <clears throat> so far in the Premier League. Um Entertained us, which apparently is becoming something of a Robbie Williams catchphrase uh, with regards to the neutrals. However, um, in my experience in the, the bookies market, uh, which has always been on the losing side, I would put Salah as an each way, Johnny. Um, I'd expect to collect my money at a fifth of the odds on 10 to 1. There's been a big campaign for Mo Salah coming from Merseyside uh, recently, but the best thing you can say for Mo Salah's chances are the PFA voted before he met Ashley Young. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Paul Merson's just texted me with a, a couple of extra candidates that I'm going to throw in at you. So I'm going to start with uh, his first pick, which is Dejan Lovren. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I would... Um... In the, in the betting parlance, Johnny, I'd be laying that one all day long. And Merce knows what it's like to lay a bet. Uh, don't don't ask me to waste my money on Dejan Lovren. Um, Liverpool have already done that. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> Ian, this one's for you, Glenn Murray. Um, well, the Musmeister, you know, he's um, scored... Um, <clears throat> the only players who've scored more goals in this, this year in the Premier League are Aguero and Salah. Than, than, than Glenn Murray at Brighton. That says a lot for a 34-year-old who's been effectively a journeyman in his career. Um, he's averaging a goal once every, I think, 162 minutes. Done an amazing job um, for Brighton of Albion so far. Indeed, his goals um, should Brighton of Albion stay up, which on 34 points with eight to play, they're expected to, would be the difference. Um, will he get the recognition? I very much doubt it. What I would say is he gets recognition amongst his fellow players because he's one of those guys who worked very hard entirely throughout his career. Um, you know, no, there was no gifts to him, no silver spoon in his mouth. So um, 
Uh, I'd love to say an each way bet for Buzzer, but I'd, I'd have to say uh, that that's not going to be a runner or a rider. Is Glenn Murray a realistic candidate for an England cap? I know there's been a bit of talk about that. He's certainly got the physicality to cause problems. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> again, um, he has something which the England don't have, and that is an ability to play as a point striker uh, on his own, but uh, and with you know certain qualities that have brought him the goals this season. But clearly, ahead of him, you've got Harry Kane who um, Glenn himself would tell you. And in fact, you know, I'm sure John is on the podcast before the end of the season, is someone he thinks is incredible and admires him greatly because he's got everything uh, in his game, every attribute, heading, left foot, right foot. And I would just like also to make mention as well of Jamie Vardy's goal, the first goal um, uh, last Saturday, which was absolutely sensational. He watches the ball come over his shoulder he doesn't, he doesn't look at the goal. He just volleys with his weaker foot into the bottom of the net um, at West Brom. And for me, that was goal of the season. So I, I think I'd love to see Muzz on an England shirt. I think his time, unfortunately, um, has come and gone. And I think that Harry Kane and Jamie Vardy are there to um, do that job. What we're basically saying about uh, Glenn Murray is that he's basically been made by his appearance on the transfer window. And any footballer that wants to come on, they're, they're destined for big things if they come on and speak to us. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to draw this to a conclusion. To continue the debate, you can. You can contact us on Twitter. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. Ian is at Garbo SG. And I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. If you want the podcast uploaded to your device automatically and as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at iTunes or Audio Boom. You can rate and review us on there too, so if you enjoy the pod, please do us a turn and give us five stars and a top-class review. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm with your next fix. Until then, thanks for listening.